Good morning and welcome to River Oaks on this Mother's Day. And again, happy Mother's Day to all of the moms here today. This is obviously a special day and a special week. It's also a special week because this past Thursday was the National Day of Prayer. And so before we get into the scripture this morning, I'd like to ask you to join me as we, we pray for our nation along with the moms here today. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we, as your people, come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in obedience to your word, which says, if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Lord, as your people, would you enable us to turn our hearts to you, to humble ourselves before you, to repent of sin, and Lord, hear our prayers for our nation. You've told us to pray for kings, rulers, all who are in authority, that we may live quiet, peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. And we pray that you would guide the hearts and minds of those in authority in our nation into ways of godly wisdom, righteousness, integrity, and your goodness. Forgive our many sins, and Lord, let our nation abide in peace and be a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is honored and where the word of God prevails. Lord, we think today of the people of Ukraine. We pray that you would strengthen the defenses of the Ukrainians, that you would bless them and keep them and protect them and cause your face to shine upon them. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of our mothers, the moms you gave to each of us, would you encourage, strengthen, pour your loving kindness, goodness on the moms here. And Lord, for those for whom this is not so much a day of rejoicing, but a day of sadness, those who've lost a mom or those who've longed to be a mom but have not yet been able to, Lord, pour your love especially on them, your great comfort, your encouragement. May they know your nearness, your loving kindness for them. I want to pray especially for a mom in our church who's battling for her life in the hospital now. We pray for, for Anne that you would send healing into her lungs and into her body and raise her up. And now, our Lord, we come to your holy word, the scripture that you have breathed out for us. And we pray, please open our eyes that we behold wonderful things out of your law that we leave here this morning knowing you better and loving you more. And we pray in the great name of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, thank you again for being here on this Mother's Day. It is so good to see so many of you with us today. We are studying the Gospel of Luke. And uh, the, the title, Certainty, has to do with Luke's writing his gospel as he did the book of Acts. Luke wrote both of those books of the New Testament that we might have certainty about that which we believe regarding Jesus. Today we're in Luke chapter 9, and we get to a passage that's commonly known as the Transfiguration. When Jesus goes up onto a mountaintop with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and He's literally transfigured by the presence, the glory of God. His very appearance is altered. And Peter and James and John got to see it. 
This event is highly significant, and it is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and then here in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And in each of those accounts, in each of those three Gospels, the transfiguration is preceded by three other things occurring in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. And I'd like to look at those very very briefly, because it's always important to consider Scripture in its setting, in its context. And I think it's helpful in understanding the significance of the transfiguration to know what happened right before it. So the setting is this. First of all, prior to the transfiguration, is the account of Peter's confession of Christ. We read in Luke 9 verse 18, now it happened as he was praying alone, that is Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Let me just pause a moment and say this. As you read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll find lots of places where Jesus was praying. In Luke chapter 3 at his baptism, he comes up out of the water, he's praying. In Luke chapter 4, he goes out in the wilderness, he's fasting, he's praying for 40 days. Later in Luke chapter 4 and verse 42, he's going out to desolate places. In Luke chapter 5, we read he would go to these desolate places to pray. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus goes alone to a mountaintop all night praying to God before he chooses his disciples. And again, he's praying. He's often praying alone, interestingly, and the disciples are observing him. Eventually, in Luke chapter 11, they'll say, Lord, teach us to pray. But as he's praying, he says to them, who do the crowd say I am? And they answer, John the Baptist. Herod had at this point already had John the Baptist beheaded. And Herod had heard about Jesus and heard these stories that maybe John had been raised from the dead. Others said Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet known for his powerful miracles, or one of the prophets of old that's arisen. Then he said, but who do you say I am? Now the disciples had been with Jesus for quite some time now, estimates may, may have been even two years, probably certainly at least a year. And Peter gives the right answer. He says, the Christ of God. As you read through the, the Gospels, Jesus' own disciples were not real quick to grasp who he really was. And Peter gets commended, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. Peter gets it. He gets it right here, the Christ of God. The next thing that happens is this, then. Very next verse, Jesus' prediction of his suffering and his death. And we read in verse 21, and he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one. That is, don't tell everybody I'm the, I'm the Messiah, the Christ yet. Time's not quite yet right. The Son of Man, and that's Jesus' title for himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, the disciples might have wanted to hear he was the Messiah. They did not want to hear this. In the account in Matthew, this was where Peter says, Lord, may it never be. This will never happen to you. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. This has been predicted. This has been prophesied. Jesus himself is predicting it. Jesus understood his mission, though his own disciples couldn't grasp it. It was purposeful. It was planned. It was predicted in the Old Testament that the Son of Man would be rejected, 
that he would be crucified, that he would be raised. Jesus knew and grasped his mission. His own disciples were slow to get it. And then he says this to them, and it's challenging, just before his transfiguration. We next find this call for the disciples to follow him by self-denial, by taking up their own cross daily in order to follow him. And we read these very important words. They're found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke 9, beginning in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now think about that for a moment. This is the strongest possible statement against nominal Christianity, a cultural Christianity. That is Christianity in name only. This is the person who, when they fill out a form that asks them to indicate their religious preference, checks Christian. Yeah. I'd select that as my religion if I'm selecting among a bunch of religions. But no hard intent to really follow Jesus at all. Maybe just an intellectual belief that Jesus was a real historical person. The Bible says even the devils believe that and tremble. This call to discipleship has a high bar. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now our salvation's free. We're saved only by grace through faith, but real faith leads to real following. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Self-denial taking up your cross, following him. And then Jesus begins to speak of glory. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Why does he start speaking of glory? Because in just a moment, that glory is going to be manifest to him. Well, not in just a moment, actually eight days later, Because eight days after this, Jesus will take Peter and James and John, and he'll go up on this mountain again to pray. And when he's up on the mountaintop praying, and it appears they were on that mountain with Jesus a whole night, uh, because when, when the account ends, it's the next day. So Jesus is praying, and all of a sudden, this incredible, dazzling light, his very face, his clothing is altered, And Peter and and James and John see with Jesus two people. One is Moses, one is Elijah. Somehow God allowed them to understand who they were. Now let's consider this transfiguration now that we've seen the background. What does it teach us? The transfiguration reveals something critically important. And please grasp the importance of this. First of all, the centrality of the gospel and God's plan for all time. We read these words. Now, about eight days after these sayings, that is after Jesus told them, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He took with him Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. Again, he's praying. Boy, he prayed all the time, didn't he? And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, 
Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah, why are they appearing? Why are they appearing with Jesus? This is incredibly important, friends. Think of it. When else in the Bible do we have someone who, we, who lived in the Old Testament and we know died hundreds of years before who, who appears again? What do we learn from that? Moses was the great lawgiver, the one through whom God gave laws to the people of Israel. He was held in the highest regard by all Jews. Elijah was the great prophet of power, did great miracles, even the raising of the dead. And together, they, we could say they represent the revelation of God that is given us in the Old Testament. They died hundreds of years before each of them, but they're alive. They're alive, and they're coming with, they're being seen in, in glory as well. What does that tell us? Tell us? Tells us that believers who have died are with God. They are not inactive. They're not in a state of soul sleep. They're very much alive. And not only that, they're active. They're still engaged in talking about, conversing about with Christ, the work of God. They're talking about what he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I'm encouraged by that, to know that heaven is not inactivity, not floating around on clouds with harps and doing nothing all the time. They're still active in the plan and work of God. It's worth noting also, they have knowledge now of God's plan. Moses and Elijah now know what Jesus is about to do in his crucifixion, in his resurrection. They know something the disciples didn't yet grasp, that he was going to accomplish something in Jerusalem. That would be our salvation. Moses and Elijah didn't know all that when they were on earth. But when we are with God will know even as we are known. As Paul says, in this life, there's, there's so many things we don't understand. We th see through a glass dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Then we'll know even as we've been known. Maybe Moses could say, now I know. Now that I'm with the Lord, now I know why God had me make that bronze serpent and put it on a pole all those years ago. Now I know why God was upset with me when I struck that rock so that water would come out instead of speaking to it like God said, because the rock represented Christ, because the serpent on the pole represented the crucifixion. Moses and Elijah. But what's, I think, most important to note in this passage as you look at it, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What do they talk about with Jesus? They talk about his suffering, his crucifixion, and the resurrection. Now, why is this important? They're not talking about his fantastic teachings, great as they were. They're not talking about his mighty miracles, as great as they were. They're not talking about righting all the wrongs in the world or solving all the problems or the political environment of the day. They're talking about the main thing, the centrality of God's plan for all time, the coming of the Son of God to give his life on the cross, to shed his blood, to be raised from the dead, to bring us to God. This is what ties the Bible together, Old and New Testaments. And this transfiguration with the appearance of Moses and Elijah who speak of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and what would be accomplished 
the bringing of people to God the Father through faith in Jesus without condemnation and forgiven of their sins, becoming the people of God forever because of Jesus. The Old Testament prophets and laws pointed to this. Christ is fulfilling it. This is the central thing, the main thing. And here in the transfiguration, we see it, what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The transfiguration also reveals the uniqueness of Jesus. We read in the next verses these words. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake... And that's important because they're not just dreaming here when they see Moses and Elijah. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents or three booths, it might read in, in uh, some translations. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Now, let me pause for a moment. Why would Peter say that? We see, he sees Moses and Elijah about to leave. Bible commentators suggest that this building of tents or booths was related to a well-known Jewish festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would actually construct these, these booths um, to be lived in for a week, it, it looked back to God's provision for the Jews during their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years after the Exodus. It was to remind them of the way that God provided them with food, with water, with shelter, with what they needed. It was a religious high point in the Jewish calendar. And it would seem that Peter's thinking, especially as he sees Moses and Elijah about to depart, this is a religious high point. <clears throat> Let's build a booth for, for each of you, for the great Elijah, the great Moses, and, and Jesus, you're up there with them. A booth for you too. Let's make three booths. But God the Father speaks, doesn't he? As Peter was saying these things, a cloud, the cloud of the glory of God came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter might have thought he was doing well in making Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah, but God the Father makes it clear Jesus is as much higher than Moses and Elijah as the heavens are above the earth. He is the chosen one. He is God the Son, the Son of God. And God's instruction is he is the one to whom you shall listen. Hear him. The transfiguration is revealing the centrality of the gospel in God's plan. Centrality of the gospel of Jesus for all time. What he would accomplish at Jerusalem. It's also stressing the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus is not another Elijah. He's not another Moses. He is unique. He is the only one. There is no one like him. He is the son of God and God the son. And thirdly, the transfiguration reveals the future glory of Jesus in which his followers will share. Glory is, as it's used in the Bible, is a word that I think is almost impossible to define in simple terms. You just have to look at all the many, many, many places it's used in, in the Old and in the New Testament. 
but it does seem to be associated with the presence of God, the brightness and the goodness, the greatness, the wonder, the majesty, the holiness that is associated with the very presence of God. Jesus knew this glory before the world was created, and he longed to return to it. He prays in John 17, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And believers will know that glory. We read just a moment ago that Moses and Elijah were experiencing this glory. They appeared in this glory with Christ. And Peter, James, and John actually got just a glimpse of it. But one day, one day, all who have followed Jesus, denying self, taking up our cross, following it all, will share in that glory. Many passages in the Bible speak of this. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and through 4, we read these words. If then you've been raised with Christ, if you're a believer, you put your faith in Jesus, He's your Savior and Lord, seek the things that are above. Think about these things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on this earth. Don't only think about things of this life all the time. Consider what's ahead for the believer. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is especially important to hold on to when we're called to sacrifice for God's sake or suffer for his sake. And if you follow Jesus faithfully all your life, you will at some point. Paul the Apostle writes these words in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this glory is something that those in Christ will share with Christ. This is the teaching of the Bible, that when you come to God through faith in Jesus, you get the inheritance of the firstborn son, the inheritance of Christ, beyond our imagination to conceive of the greatness of what that will be for all of eternity. Paul, who suffered immensely for serving and following Jesus, writes, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He seems to be making the point that present sacrifice and suffering for the believer, the follower of Jesus, lead to future glory, self-denial, taking up our cross, following him. We can anticipate this future glory. Life as a self-denying, cross-carrying follower of Jesus won't be easy. But Paul says future glory will far, far, far surpass all the sacrifices and the suffering that we endured as we followed him. So as we come to the end of this passage, I'd like to raise two questions of personal application. The first one is this. Am I living with awareness 
of what it means to take up my cross daily and follow him. Am I a mere nominal Christian, Christian in name only, or a mere follower of Jesus? If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and and follow me. Secondly, am I living with a vision for future glory? As Paul wrote the Galatians, if you've died with Christ, set your minds on things above. When, when, When he comes, we'll appear with him in glory. It will make present suffering seem as very little compared with the greatness of that glory. Would you join me as we pray about these things? Our Father, we thank you for what the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, did when he left the glory to take upon himself flesh and blood, be born as a baby, a dependent little infant. And then at the age of 33, gave his life and accomplished for us eternal salvation, made us sharers of his own inheritance through faith in him. And Lord, I pray for any here today, any watching online who may have never truly embraced him as Savior and Lord. Would you give the grace to turn to him, to bow before him, to call upon him and receive his salvation by grace through faith. Lord, I pray for those who are suffering and sacrificing and need the encouraging work of the Holy Spirit. Would you lift them up today? Let them not be weary in well-doing, but remind them that in due season, we reap your blessing your provision, your grace, your guidance. May your peace and blessing be on your people, Father. In the mighty name of the King of kings, Jesus our Lord. Amen.